I'll be reading from Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is it is not, excuse me, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why you are anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, good morning, everybody. So do not worry, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Three times in this passage, Jesus is insistent. You should not worry, you should not be anxious. And I've really wrestled with this passage this week for this reason. You know, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and although we're not doing every word of Matthew, because Davy would probably grow up and graduate and go to college before we did finish if we were doing that, we'll be in it for the whole year. So we're trying to get as many texts in Matthew as we can. That means you can't pick and choose texts. You've got to do what's in front of you. And the thing I think is so difficult about this text is what does Jesus mean by do not worry? This is really something that's had me thinking a lot this week. In fact, I was up this morning worrying about my sermon on worry because of this distinction, uh, which as you'll see, it probably wasn't worrying, it was called preparation, which is not worrying. Jesus says don't worry cavalierly like we're supposed to understand what that means, but here's the problem. In our context today, we mean two sets of things, in fact, two very different things when we bring up the word anxiety and when we bring up the word worry. The first one being anxiety. We live in a, in a mental health-centric culture right now. We have gotten serious about mental health. We've talked about it. We are all in on medicating, talking about, exposing, being aware of mental health. So when we say anxiety, sometimes that's what we mean, like chronic anxiety or low-grade anxiety or something that you need uh, because you have a chemical imbalance of some kind, you need to be prescribed medicine. And there's a million different takes on that. But there's also the kind of just, you're worried about something. You're thinking about it. It's coming up. It's impending. You are fretting about it. It's affecting you physically. It's affecting your schedule. And so what I want to do this morning, before we even start into this sermon, is I want to say, what is Jesus actually prohibiting? Because he does command three times in this passage, 
not to do something. We just got to figure out what that is. Because the problem is, you can sometimes do all this dancing with the text that it turns out a clear command doesn't really prohibit anything. And you're like, okay, great. I'll just go on with my life as normal. But some of you, I, I, I'm concerned that some may hear do not worry and think that it applies to a lot of things that it doesn't. So what we want to do is we want to let the text define for us what is Jesus prohibiting in this text? What does it mean to worry or to have anxiety? And why is Jesus commanding us not to have it? So first of all, let's look at what it's not in this passage. Notice that from the examples of the birds and the lilies, worry is not the same thing as motivation or hard work or thinking ahead, right? This is not a command to be passive in your life. Go ahead and cash in your 401k because you shouldn't even think about tomorrow. You should just live in the now. That cannot be what Jesus is talking about because of the examples that he uses. Secondly, it is opposed to, it is not faith because he rebukes the people who are listening in verse 30 by saying, if God clothes the, the lilies of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow's thrown in the oven, meaning it is worthless in the scope of eternity, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, and this is a direct, this is, it doesn't really say, O you of little faith. It's just one word. It says, micro-faithers. You little faithers. And later, Jesus is going to say, O you of little faith, that, that's like if you have faith less than a mustard seed, because even a mustard seed could move a mountain. So, oh, you have little faith is like smaller than mustard seed faith. Worry and faith are antitheses. Now notice what it is. It is something that Jesus commands us not to do. It is something that Jesus is saying, this is actually wrong for you to do. You shouldn't live this way, which makes you think, why would he need to command me not to be worried? It's not like I enjoy being worried or I enjoy being anxious, and it's like, okay, I'll skip that little pleasure of my life by not being worried anymore. It's something that I can affect. It's something that I can control. It is commanded. It's something that we can make changes in our life to go from one state of existence to another. And the last thing it is, it is the way of the world. Notice what he says in verse 32. He says, for the Gentiles, the nations, seek after these things. But you should not seek after these things because you're not one of them. You're a Christian. This is the implied motive behind all the commands of the Sermon on the Mount is you're not the same person that you used to be. Amen. You're a different kind of person. You have the Spirit, and so you're going to live in a way that reflects your new identity, your new life, your new father, your new family. You need to live in a way that's different than the way the Gentiles live. Well, the Gentiles seek after things like clothing and food and material possessions because they think that those are the most important things in their life. It struck me this week, if you do any research on anxiety in the United States, we are the most medicated people in the history of the world. And at the same time, the most fortunate, the richest and the most anxious people that have ever lived. It's almost like the more you seek after these things that the Gentiles seek, the more anxious you become. It's almost like Jesus is right here by saying, if you will just change your priorities, your worry problem is going to go away. 
So, so how should we define this? For this morning, what I want you to think is less anxiety in the clinical sense and more worrying in the way that we often try to control things that we cannot control. Basically, what Jesus is going to command this morning is a priority shift and a humility to say, I'm not going to obsess over, I'm not going to focus on, I'm not going to spend myself on things that God has not put under my control. In another way, saying it, worry would be, let God be God and you be his child. That's what we're talking about this morning. Do not worry means do not try to hold on to the things that are God's. If God is going to make a decision, let God make the decision. If God is going to provide it, let God provide it. If God has given you something to do, do it. That's what it means not to worry. So Jesus gives us four prescriptions in this passage that help us not to worry. Help us to see our place in the world and see his place in the world. Help us to put our priorities on the right things instead of the wrong things. And the first thing that Jesus says in this passage, do not worry, he says, consider the birds. Become a bird watcher, might be how we would translate this. This is very strange advice. Jesus, in, in this word, is, is not just look at the birds, although that's, that's a, not a bad term. It's, it's more like contemplate. Spend a minute thinking about. Look, but actually see what's going on. Because this, this is a command for something that you are supposed to do. The first step in eliminating worry in your life and reprioritizing things the way God has designed them to function is take a minute, look around, think about it. This is especially pertinent for us. We live in one of the most beautiful places you could ever find yourself. And Jesus says, go outside, find a bird in the tree, look around, think about it for a second. What do you learn? The birds dispel the myth that God's provision and our hard work cannot coexist. Because if you consider the birds for a minute, the birds don't just wake up every morning and sit in their nest like, where's the worms? You know, If that was the case, God could very easily have made flying worms if he wanted to. And they would just go right by and they would just grab them. There'd be no work involved. And then they wouldn't attack you when you have a Subway sandwich or anything in a big city. It would be perfect if God had designed the world that way, but God didn't design the world that worry and work are opposed to each other. The birds work for their food. They get up, the early birds especially, get up and they go and they look for their food. And he's saying, contemplate the fact that that is also you. That's also you. Working hard in your domain, doing your best, preparing, providing, spending yourself is not the kind of thing that Jesus is prohibiting. He is prohibiting the fact that the birds never obsess about things that are not part of their environment. You don't see birds thinking about things other than their next meal. The babies in their nest. The, babies, the birds, you don't see them fantasizing about things and creating things and making art or anything like that. For them, it's just very basic. We need to eat. We need to survive. And Jesus says, in that tiny little world, God provides for them. Their most basic needs, God provides. Consider the birds is a call for us to contemplate the sovereignty and provision of God. That God has made the world in a certain way, he's made you in a certain way that is best fulfilled when he is the one you look to for your provision. 
I've been reading a new book the last couple of days. It's Colin Hansen's biography of Tim Keller. If you know Tim Keller at all, he's our generation's C.S. Lewis, probably the most profound apologetics writer living today, planted a church in New York City in 1990. He's the one that the city went to after 9-11 to say, we need you to preach this church service. He's, he's been a huge figure in American Christianity. And the thing that's interesting about him is, in this biography, it talks about how did Tim Keller originally learn to study the Bible? He was a college student, and he got involved with InterVarsity on his college campus at Bucknell. And there was a woman there that worked for InterVarsity who went around the country training college students how to study the Bible. That's all she did. She was a single woman. She worked for 50 years for InterVarsity. And she went around and taught college students how to study the Bible. That's how Tim Keller learned to study the Bible. And he, he says in the book, in an interview, he says, there's a message that this lady, her name is Barbara Boyd, gave that I never forgot. He's like, this is what I go to every time I'm worried that God might not provide for me. So she's teaching on how to study the Bible. And all of a sudden, she begins to give an illustration about the providence and the provision of God. She said, if the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a single piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was just one sheet of paper, do you realize that the stack of papers would be 70 feet high from us to the nearest star? Do you realize that the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high? And we're just one of the small galaxies. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus holds the universe together with his pinky. And then she said, do you really ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? Do you ask somebody like that in your life just to take care of the details. Jesus is either Lord, provider, sustainer of your life, or he is nothing. There is no middle ground for Jesus. He has been put by God in charge of all things. In Colossians 1, Paul says, everything was created through him and by him and for him. And in him, the whole universe holds together. And Jesus in this sermon is saying, your father knows what you need, and he will provide it. So he says, just look at the birds. Just look at nature. Just look at what God is doing in the universe to hold all things together and know that God will provide for you. So you, you have this first example, and for most of us, this is like, that's really profound. That's a really helpful example. But Jesus knows that there are contrarians in the crowd who are thinking, yeah, but have you seen planet Earth? Have you seen when animals attack? I'm not sure nature is really all that well held together. I've seen some pretty crazy things in nature. And Jesus is going to go on. He's going to give us another layer. It's not just God's cold provision and sovereignty over the universe. He says, take another example. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And they, they don't work they don't do anything. And, and lilies is an interesting word to use for this. Think more like weed. Think about a weed that pops up. This is not a flower that's used for anything. This is a flower that just by the side of the road happens to be there. He says, they do nothing. And God clothes them in beautiful colors. 
In fact, they are worth nothing. See, these, these are not flowers that you would display. These are not things that you would use for something. These are ones that the only thing they're good for is starting the burners when the workday begins. The furnaces are lit by these kinds of flowers. And yet, God paints beautiful landscapes with these flowers. Why does he do that? The second provision that God gives, the second part of this command is, don't just consider the birds, consider your father. Consider your father. Notice something interesting about how Jesus says this. In verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly father feeds them. And look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. And Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed. But if God clothes them, will he not much more clothe you? Seek first, the, the Gentiles worry about these, but if you seek first your heavenly father, he will provide. The flowers are not children of God. The birds are not children of God. Consider the birds. Your father clothes them. It'd be, it'd be expected for him to say, their father clothes them. But he says, your father, who is in heaven, clothes the birds. And your father in heaven paints the lilies of the field. Imagine what he will do for his child. If he cares that much, and if he is so lavish in what he has to provide, that he will do that for birds and flowers, imagine what he will do for his sons and daughters. Your father provides. And it's amazing that in the Bible, God could be called any number of things. And in fact, we could go through all the things that God has called creator, sustainer, all-powerful, almighty. And in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to refer to him as father. Remember in the Lord's Prayer we talked about last week, Jesus stunned everybody by saying, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. If you remember in Galatians, one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is in you is that the Spirit in our hearts makes us cry, Abba, Father. God has condescended to us. He has adopted us, his former enemies, not just so that he could be our Lord and be apart from us, but so that he could be our Father, that we could be in his family. So, in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he puts it this way. He says, you can sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation that God is your Father. In the same way, you can sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much they make of the thought that they are God's child and that they have God as their father. It reminds me of the time when Winston Churchill's brother Jack died in 1947. He went at the funeral and pulled his nephew Johnny aside and he said, I'll be your father now. If you're in trouble, you come to me. This was after World War II. This was when he was the most famous guy in the world. And because there was a relation there, and because something bad had happened, he goes and he says, I'm your father now. If you need something, you come to me. And God has done the same thing in the opening of John. The whole theme of John's gospel is, those who believed in him and trusted in his name, he came and said, I'm your father now. If you need something, you come to me. 
You're my child. You're my beloved child. In the prophets, they play on this theme of God as a father, and they say, could a father ever forget their children? Then surely God will not forget his people. And you know what? The more we grow in our faith, we don't graduate. You don't, you're, you don't ever become anything but a child of God. You don't grow up and be like an adult peer of God's. But when you were a baby Christian, you were his child. You're always a child of God. You will always be his child. He will always be your father. The provision that Jesus gives us here not to worry is stop living like an orphan. Stop living like you have been left by yourself. You've been brought into the family of God. And God, your father, knows how to give good gifts to his children. In fact, later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that if you ask, it will be given to you. And we're going we're to talk about why Jesus says that. But he says, anyone who knocks, the door will be open. And which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, would give you a stone? Or if he asks you for fish, would you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So it's not just a matter of God being the sovereign creator of the universe, although that's where we start, is God can provide anything we need. He has the power at his disposal, he has the ability, he has the track record to do it, but it's even better than that. He's not indisposed towards you. He wants to provide for you. He's your father. So Jesus says, consider the sovereignty of God. Look around. Look at how God runs his universe. And consider the fact that your father does those things, and he loves you way more than he loves the lilies and the sparrows and the birds. So won't your father provide for you? Your heavenly father knows what you need, he says, and he will give it to you. So what will he provide? So Jesus, after giving these two examples... Jesus is going to tie this up, and we move from consider, think about, help, let me help you see this, to here's what you should do. So we go from these two illustrations in the beginning of this passage about how to reframe the way we see the world to get rid of worry, to a replacement of worry in your life. See, because here's the thing, you can't stop worrying. You can't just say, all of a sudden, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to think about that, because as soon as you say that, that's all you're going to think about, is that. And so Jesus understands this. He made us, after all, he knows how we work. He knows he can't just say, hey, stop it. It's like that SNL skit with the counselor where they tell him all their problems. He's like, stop it, right, as if that was the thing to do. Jesus is like, don't worry, just stop doing that. No, Jesus says, actually, you need to replace your worrying with something else, You need to replace your worry with seeking something. The end of this passage, Jesus says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. The replacement of worrying is seeking God's kingdom. And this is a very simple command. Make God's priorities your priorities, and you will see him provide. This, that's as simple as it gets. If you will get on track with what God is doing, you will see that every need you have is provided for. Now, it's not always the way we want it to be provided, right? Because somebody in the back at the Sermon on the Mount is like, I am all in on God, and I am profoundly suffering. 
What Jesus is saying here is, seek first the kingdom of God, and God will provide everything you need to arrive in his heavenly kingdom in the end. God's playing the long game with your life. He's saying, what is it going to take to mold and shape this person and strip away the evil things and the things that they're drawn to? What's it going to take for me to have this person be a person who lives in eternity with me? I'll do anything I have to to make that happen. So seek first the kingdom means we start to make God's top priorities our top priorities, which is a very foreign thing for us to do because we come hardwired that our priorities are the top priority. What we want, what we desire, what we feel comes first in our life. And Jesus is saying, if you want to get rid of worry, and in fact, if you want to get rid of all these other things that he mentions, put the kingdom first. Put God first. Put his plan first. Get out of the center of your own life. Stop trying to do things your way. Start doing things God's way. Throw in your lot with God and with the kingdom. Align your priorities and all these things will be added to you. This word worry that we've been talking about in chapter 6, it appears a few other places in the Bible. The most prominent place is in a story of two women, sisters. Jesus comes over to their house, and they've prepared, you know, for days because Jesus is coming. In fact, we know from the Gospel of John that they were really good friends with Jesus. And he was at their house often. And he comes over one afternoon, and the two sisters decide to do very different things to receive Jesus. One, Mary, doesn't do anything. She just sits at the feet of Jesus and listens. And her sister Martha is in the kitchen doing everything, preparing food, washing dishes, scurrying around, doing all the things that you would need to if you were hosting it. And Jesus rebukes her for that. He says, Mary has chosen what is right. There's one thing necessary in this moment, and Mary's got it right. What makes this story make sense? Because what Martha's doing is not a bad thing, but it's down on the priority list when God's priorities are your top priority. Listening to Jesus, being face-to-face with Jesus, communing with Jesus in that moment is more important than putting on appearances and making sure there's enough food and making sure everything looks good. Jesus says she has chosen to put her priorities in the right order. There's a great book on this story called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. I don't know if you guys have ever come across that. But that's what God's priority looks like, having a merry heart, seeking the kingdom, seeking the righteousness of God in a world that tells us your priority should be completely the opposite. Seek first the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see this again, and, and Peter gives us some interesting advice. It doesn't sound at first like it squares up with Jesus. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, casting all your worries on him because he cares for you, because he cares for you, because he's your father. Think about this advice. Humility, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And seeking first the kingdom, which humility, C.S. Lewis says, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. That's humility. So thinking of yourself less, thinking of God more, moving yourself out of the middle, moving God to the center, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties, your worries 
on him, letting him do what he can do, and I will do what I've been called to do. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. This is the part that gets left off. You probably heard this seek first verse a million times, and you hardly ever hear the righteousness part. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So that would be a great verse, but it gets even better. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. This whole sermon is about righteousness. We've been hitting this. If you've been here for the Sermon on the Mount, I think we're in week four or five now. Righteousness is the theme of the sermon. He begins the sermon in chapter five with the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, we're talking about seeking the righteousness of God. What we've been saying is righteousness has a life component, has a moral component. We want to do the things that God commands us to do. But deeper than that, righteousness, true righteousness, can only be had when your heart is totally devoted to God. When you have a relationship such that there are no obstacles between you and God. Your sin is being confessed to God. It's being forgiven by him. Your competing priorities are being pushed out. Your highest aim is to seek his face. That's what it means to be righteous. So to be righteous means our heart is devoted and oriented towards God. And if you do that, you will begin to live righteously. Because the problem is the Pharisees thought that they could live outwardly righteously without having a righteous heart. Like, we could please God but never talk to him and not really even know him. That's what's so haunting about what Jesus says when the people come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're not righteous. You may have done some great things, but we don't have any relationship. You don't have the righteousness that I desire. Jesus says, seek righteousness. Seek to have a heart that is predisposed to God, that you've met with him, you know him, you commune with him. Seek his kingdom, yes, but seek his righteousness. Seek a relationship with him that is clear from any obstacles, and then everything you need will be provided. Then these things will be added to you. If you want to find any lasting peace, if you want to be free from worry, the bottom line for Jesus is you have to get right with God you got to know how things end for you. Because at the end of the day, if you are not righteous, you don't know how things are going to end. I mean, you, if you read the Bible, you have a sense of what's going to happen. But if you want to be certain about the future, you've got to know where you're going. You've got to know who's waiting for you. You've got to know what that's going to be like. You've got to know who paid for your sins so that you eventually can be with him forever. See, the root of worry, of control, of anxiety for things that are not ours to control, of seeking the things that God has said, do not seek those things. The, the root of that is a divided soul, a soul that says, my greatest good is God and my greatest good is something else. Because right before this passage, it says, you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says, store up treasures on earth and they will decay and rust and rot. But if you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, there your heart 
will be. A man cannot serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. The root of worry is the question, do you have two masters in your life, or do you have one? Do you have a righteousness that is divided? Do you have a soul that's being pulled in two ways, or do you have one sustaining goal for your life, to know and love God as your Father, to do His will, to take what he's given you and turn it over into his kingdom work. On my desk at our house, I keep this little book. It's a hymnal. They used to make these really cool little hymnals that you could keep in like a vest pocket. But since we don't wear vests anymore, they don't make these. And this one was printed in 1908. And I flip through here every now and then just looking for hymns and songs and little poems. And I was looking through this week and I came across this hymn by a lady named Charlotte Elliott. And I didn't know who Charlotte Elliott was when I read this. I just thought, this is just the best little song. It's called Come to Me. And I, so I, I decided to dive into Charlotte Elliott. And she was a highly educated, famous portraitist. She wrote humorous poems anonymously in the English papers. She lived in the early 19th century. Her family was well-to-do. She was in the high society circles of life. But in her early 30s, she developed a chronic illness that would stay with her for the rest of her life. In fact, she developed an illness to where she never left the house. She could very seldom even get outside. And about a year after this happened, there was a little revival in their town. A traveling evangelist comes through, and one of her family members said, well, Charlotte is at our house. Would you mind coming by to see her? So he does. He comes by, and they talk a little bit. And she, at that moment, in, in the months leading up to that, had been under this horrible conviction from God over her sin. And so she's talking to this evangelist, and she says, there's just so much in my life I need to change before I come to Christ. And the evangelist wrote her a letter later that got back to her, and in the letter, it just said, in one of the parts, it said, Charlotte, just come as you are. And in 1836, 1835, she wrote the song, Just As I Am, which most people would say is the most important song for conversions because it was played at all the Billy Graham crusades. So she writes this song, which of course a hundred years after her death, it becomes prominent. But what I thought was interesting about her is not just that. I didn't know that she had written that song, but I thought, how cool is that? He said, come just as you are. And she wrote that as a tribute to what it takes to come to God. What I found interesting is that after she became a Christian, she devoted her life to writing hymns for God. She was a shut-in, she couldn't go anywhere, she was sickly, but she could write hymns. And so she edited a book called The Invalid's Hymnal that had about 15 hymns that she had picked out for people who couldn't go to church, a little pamphlet that she edited and published, and she wrote this song for people like her. It says, with tearful eyes I look around, Life seems a dark and stormy sea. Yet amid the gloom, I hear a sound, a heavenly whisper, come to me. It tells me of a place of rest. It tells me where my soul may flee. Oh, to the weary, faint, and oppressed, how sweet the bidding, come to me. 
Come, for all else will fail and die. Earth is no resting place for thee. To heaven direct thy weeping eye. I am thy portion. Come to me. O voice of mercy, voice of love, in conflict, grief, and agony, support me, cheer me from above, and gently whisper, come to me. I thought that's, that's it. The command not to worry is a relational command. It is a command to come to Jesus with everything. Cast your burdens on him. Stop worrying about the things that you want. Come to him and say, what are you providing? What do you have for me? What are you calling me to do that if I do it, you will give me everything I need to go in that direction? Come to me is the call of the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes we think that come to me is only a call for non-Christians, but it's not. Come to me is a call for all of us to say, are you seeking the kingdom or are you just aware of the kingdom? Are you adjacent to Jesus? You go to all the right things, you know a bunch of people, or are you in fellowship with Jesus? Do you, are you seeking first his righteousness or are you just trying to be good enough? Come to me. As we sing this morning, I want us all to consider the call not to worry, but I want us to consider it the way Jesus tells us to consider it. Seek the kingdom. Cast your burdens on him. Get rid of the priorities that should be lower than your relationship with him. Give thanks to him. And above all, give yourself to him. Give him yourself, your heart, your plans, your vision, your dreams, and then all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you not just as a calculating Lord, not just as a powerful tyrant, but as our Father. And because of that, Lord, we know that you will provide for us. Father, I, I know in my own heart and many sitting here, there are moments we do not see your provision. We do not feel like you are providing for us. So, Lord, this morning as we reflect, as we consider who you are, would you bring to our minds the way that you are providing? Father, would you help us in the areas where we actually have two functional lords to eliminate anything but you in our life? Father, you've commanded us to seek you. And so now as we sing, as we pray, as we stand here and think, Lord, we we seek you. We want to find you. We want to be with you. We want to be in a relationship with you. So, Father, reveal yourself to us this morning. Show us your goodness. Show us your mercy, Lord. Show us your love for us. Father, we can see that in nothing more than the death of your son who you gave to bring us into your family. So, Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's worship, and respond to the Lord.